Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight we continue our story, Walking, by Henry David Thoreau. I know not how significant it is, or how far it is an evidence of a singularity, but that an individual should thus consent in his pettiest walk with the general movement of the race. But I know that something akin to the migratory instinct in birds and quadrupeds, which in some instances is known to have affected the squirrel tribe, impelling them to a general and mysterious movement in which they were seen, say some, crossing the broadest rivers, each on its particular chip, with its tail raised for a sail and bridging narrower streams with their dead, that something like the furor which affects the domestic cattle in the spring and which is referred to a worm in their tails, affects both nations and individuals either perennially or from time to time. Not a flock of wild geese cackles over our town, but it to some extent unsettles the value of real estate here. And if I were a broker, I should probably take that disturbance into account. Than longin folk to gone on pilgrimage, and palmares far to seek in strange strands. Every sunset which I witness inspires me, but the desire to go to a west as distant and as fair as that into which the sun goes down. He appears to migrate westward daily and tempt us to follow him. He is the great western pioneer whom the nations follow. We dream all night of those mountain ridges in the horizon, though they may be a vapor only which were last gilded by his rays. The island of Atlantis and the islands and gardens of the Hesperides, a sort of terrestrial paradise, appear to have been the great west of the ancients, enveloped in mystery and poet. Who is not seen in imagination when looking into the sunset sky, the gardens of the Hesperides, and the foundation of all those fables? Columbus felt the westward tendency more strongly than any before. He obeyed it and found a new world for Castile and Leon. The herd of men in those days scented fresh pastures from afar. And now the sun had stretched out all the hills, and now was dropped into the western bay. At last he rose and twitched his mantle blue, tomorrow to fresh woods and pastures new. Where on the globe can there be found an area of equal extent with that occupied by the bulk of our states? so fertile and so rich and varied in its productions, and at the same time so habitable by the European as this is. Michaud, who knew but part of them, says that the species of large trees are much more numerous in North America than in Europe. In the United States, there are more than 140 species that exceed 30 feet in height. In France, there are but 30 that attain this size. Later, botanists more than confirm his observations. Humboldt came to America to realize his youthful dreams of a tropical vegetation, and he beheld it in its greatest perfection in the primitive forests of the Amazon, the most gigantic wilderness on the earth, which he has so eloquently described. The geographer Guyot, himself a European, goes farther, farther than I am ready to follow him, yet not when he says, 
As the plant is made for the animal, as the vegetable world is made for the animal world, America is made for the man of the old world. The man of the old world sets out upon his way. Leaving the highlands of Asia, he descends from station to station towards Europe. Each of his steps is marked by a new civilization superior to the preceding, by a greater power of development. Arrived at the Atlantic, he pauses on the shore of this unknown ocean, the bounds of which he knows not, and turns upon his footprints for an instant. When he has exhausted the rich soil of Europe and reinvigorated himself, then recommences his adventurous career westward as in the earliest ages. So far, Guyot. From this western impulse coming in contact with the barrier of the Atlantic sprang the commerce and enterprise of modern times. The younger Michaud, in his travels west of the Alleghenies in 1802, says that the common inquiry in the newly settled west was, From what part of the world have you come? As if these vast and fertile regions would naturally be the place of meeting and common country of all the inhabitants of the globe. To use an obsolete Latin word, I might say, Exorient lux, ex occident frux, from the east, light, from the west, Root. Sir Francis Head, an English traveler and a governor-general of Canada, tells us that both in the northern and the southern hemispheres of the New World, nature has not only outlined her works on a larger scale, but has painted the whole picture with brighter and more costly colors than she used in delineating and in beautifying the Old World. The heavens of America appear infinitely higher, the sky is bluer, the air is fresher, the cold is intenser, the moon looks larger. The stars are brighter, the thunder is louder, the lightning is vivider, the wind is stronger, the rain is heavier, the mountains are higher, the rivers longer, the forests bigger, the plains broader. This statement will do, at least, to set against Buffon's account of this part of the world and its productions. Linnaeus said long ago, Nescio que fancy leta, glabra plantis americanus. I know not what there is of joyous and smooth in the aspect of American plants. And I think that in this country there are no, or at least very few, African beasties, African beasts, as the Romans called them, and that in this respect it is also peculiarly fitted for the habitation of man. We are told that within three miles of the center of the East Indian city of Singapore, some of the inhabitants are annually carried off by tigers. But the traveler can lie down in the woods at night almost anywhere in North America without fear of wild beasts. These are encouraging testimonies. If the moon looks larger here than in Europe, probably the sun looks larger also. If the heavens of America appear infinitely higher and the stars brighter, I trust that these facts are symbolical of the height to which the philosophy, poetry, and religion of her inhabitants may one day soar. At length, perchance, the immaterial heaven will appear as much higher to the American mind and the intimations that start as much brighter. For I believe that climate does thus react on man, as there is something in the mountain air that feeds the spirit and inspires. Will not man grow to greater perfection intellectually as well as physically under these influences? Or is it unimportant how many foggy days there are in his life? I trust that we shall be more imaginative that our thoughts will be clearer, fresher, and more ethereal as our sky. Our understanding, more comprehensive and broader, like our plains. Our intellect generally on a grander scale, like our thunder and lightning. Our rivers and mountains and forests. 
and our hearts shall even correspond in breadth and depth and grandeur to our inland seas. Perchance there will appear to the traveler something, he knows not what, of Tata and Glabra, of joyous and serene, in our very faces. Else to what end does the world go on, and why was America discovered? To Americans, I hardly need to say. Westward the star of empire takes its As a true patriot, I should be ashamed to think that Adam in Paradise was more favorably situated on the whole than the backwoodsmen in this country. Our sympathies in Massachusetts are not confined to New England, though we may be estranged from the South, we sympathize with the West. There is the home of the younger sons, as among the Scandinavians they took to the sea for their inheritance. It is too late to be studying Hebrew, it is more important to understand even the slang of some months ago, I went to see a panorama of the Rhine. It was like a dream of the Middle Ages. I floated down its historic stream in something more than imagination, under bridges built by the Romans and repaired by later heroes, past cities and castles whose very names were music to my ears, and each of which was a subject of a legend. There were Aaron Breitstein and Rolandsek and Koblenz, which I knew only in history. There were ruins that interested me chiefly. There seemed to come up from its waters and its vine-clad hills and valleys a hushed music as of crusaders departing for the Holy Land. I floated along under the spell of enchantment as if I had been transported to a heroic age and breathed an atmosphere of chivalry. Soon after, I went to see a panorama of the Mississippi, and as I worked my way up the river in the light of today, and saw the steamboats wooding up, counted the rising cities, gazed on the fresh ruins of Nauvoo, beheld the Indians moving west across the street, and as I had before looked up the Moselle, now looked up the Ohio and the Missouri, and heard the legends of Dubuque and of Winona's Cliff, still thinking more of the future than of the past or present, I saw that this was a Rhine stream of a different kind, that the foundations of castles were yet to be laid, and the famous bridges were yet to be thrown over the river, and I felt that this was the heroic age itself, though we know it not, for the hero was commonly the simplest and obscurest of men. The West in which I speak is but another name for the wild, and what I have been preparing to say is that in wildness is the preservation of the world. Every tree sends its fibers forth in search of the wild. The city is imported at any price, Men plow and sail for it. From the forest and wilderness come the tonics and barks which brace mankind. Our ancestors were savages. The story of Romulus and Remus being suckled by a wolf is not a meaningless fable. The founders of every state which has risen to eminence have drawn their nourishment and vigor from a similar wild source. It was because the children of the empire were not suckled by the wolf that they were conquered and displaced by the children of the northern forests who were. I believe in the forest, and in the meadow, and in the night in which the corn grows. We require an infusion of hemlock spruce or arbor vitae in our tea. There is a difference between eating and drinking for strength and for mere gluttony. The Hottentots eagerly devour the marrow of the kudu and other antelopes raw as a matter of course. Some of our northern Indians eat raw the marrow of the Arctic reindeer, as well as various other parts, including the summits of the antlers, as long as they are soft. 
and herein, perchance, they have stolen a march on the cooks of Paris. They get what usually goes to feed the fire. This is probably better than stall-fed beef and slaughterhouse pork to make a man of. Give me a wildness whose glance no civilization can endure, as if we lived on the marrow of Kudu's devoured raw. There are some intervals which border the strain of the wood thrush to which I would migrate, wild lands where no settler has squatted, to which, methinks, I am already acclimated. The African hunter coming tells us that the skin of the eland, as well as that of most other antelopes just killed, emits the most delicious perfume of trees and grass. I would have every man so much like a wild antelope, so much a part and parcel of nature, that his very person should thus sweetly advertise our senses of his presence and remind us of those parts of nature which he most haunt. I feel no disposition to be satirical. When the trapper's coat emits the odor of musquash even, it is a sweeter scent to me than that which commonly exhales from the merchant's or the scholar's garments. When I go into their wardrobes and handle their vestments, I am reminded of no grassy plains and flowery meads which they have frequented, but of dusty merchants' exchanges and libraries, rather. A tan skin is something more than respectable, and perhaps olive is a fitter color than white for a man, a denizen of the woods, the pale white man. I do not wonder that the African pitied him. Darwin the naturalist says, A white man bathing by the side of a Tahitian was like a plant bleached by the gardener's art, compared with a fine dark green one, growing vigorously in the open fields. Ben Johnson exclaims, How near to good is what is fair! So, I would say, how near to good is what is wild? Life consists with wildness. The most alive is the wildest. Not yet subdued to man, its presence refreshes him. One who pressed forward incessantly and never rested from his labors, who grew fast and made infinite demands on life, would always find himself in a new country or wilderness and surrounded by the raw material of life. He would be climbing over the prostrate stems of primitive forest trees. Hope and the future for me are not in lawns and cultivated fields, not in towns and cities, but in the impervious and quaking swamps. When formerly I have analyzed my partiality for some farm which I had contemplated purchasing, I frequently found that I was attracted solely by a few square rods of impermeable and unfathomable bog, a natural sink in one corner of it. That was the jewel which dazzled me. I derive more of my subsistence from the swamps which surround my native town than from the cultivated gardens in the village. There are no richer parterres to my eyes than the dense lands of dwarf Andromeda, Cassandra Calculat, which cover those tender places on the earth's surface. Botany cannot go farther than tell me the names of the shrubs which grow there, the high blueberry, the panicled Andromeda, Lamkil, Azalea, and Rhodora all standing in the quaking sphagnum. I often think that I should like to have my house front on this mass of dull red bushes, omitting other flower pots and borders, transplanted spruce and trim box, even graveled walks, to have this fertile spot under my windows, not a few imported barrelfuls of soil, only to cover the sand which was thrown out in digging the cellar. Why not put my house, my parlor, behind this plot, instead of behind that meager assemblage of curiosities, that poor apology for our nature and art, 
which I call my front yard. It is an effort to clear up and make a decent appearance when the carpenter and mason have departed, though done as much for the passerby as for the dweller within. The most tasteful front yard fence was never an agreeable object of study to me. The most elaborate ornaments, acorn tops or whatnot, soon wearied and disgusted me. Bring your sills up to the very edge of the swamp then, though it may not be the best place for a dry cellar, so that there be no access on that side to citizens. Front yards are not made to walk in, but at most through, and you could go in the back way. Yes, though you may think me perverse, if it were proposed to me to dwell in the neighborhood of the most beautiful garden that ever human art contrived, or else of a dismal swamp, I should certainly decide for the swamp. How vain, then, have been all your labors, citizens, for me. My spirits infallibly rise in proportion to the outward dreariness. Give me the ocean, the desert, or the wilderness. In the desert, pure air and solitude compensate for want of moisture and fertility. The traveler Burton says of it, your morale improves, you become frank and cordial, hospitable and single-minded. In the desert, spiritous liquors excite only disgust. There is a keen enjoyment in a mere animal existence. They who have been traveling long in the steppes of Tartary say, on re-entering cultivated lands, the agitation, perplexity, and turmoil of civilization oppressed and suffocated us. The air seemed to fail us, and we felt every moment as if about to die of asphyxia. When I would recreate myself, I seek the darkest wood, the thickest and most interminable, and to the citizen, most dismal swamp. I enter the swamp as a sacred place, a sanctum sanctorum. There is the strength, the marrow of nature. The wild wood covers the virgin mold, and the same soil is good for men and for trees. A man's health requires as many acres of meadow to his prospect as his farm does loads of muck. There are the strong meats on which he feeds. A town is saved not more by the righteous man in it than by the woods and swamps that surround it. A township where one primitive forest waves above, while another primitive forest rots below, such a town is fitted to raise not only corn and potatoes, but poets and philosophers for the coming ages. In such a soil grew Homer and Confucius and the rest, and out of such a wilderness comes a reformer eating locusts and wild honey. To preserve wild animals implies generally the creation of a forest for them to dwell in or resort to. So is it with man. A hundred years ago they sold bark in our streets peeled from our own woods. In the very aspect of these primitive and rugged trees, there was, methinks, a tanning principle which hardened and consolidated the fibers of men's thoughts. Ha! Already I shudder for these comparatively degenerate days of my native village, where you cannot collect a load of bark of good thickness, and we no longer produce tar and turpentine. The civilized nations... Greece, Rome, England, have been sustained by the primitive forests which anciently rotted where they stood. They survive as long as the soil is not exhausted. Alas, for human culture, little is to be expected of a nation when the vegetable mold is exhausted and it is compelled to make manure of the bones of its fathers. There the poet sustains himself merely by his own superfluous fat, and the philosopher comes down on his marrow. It is said to be the task of the American to work the virgin soil, 
and that agriculture here already assumes proportions unknown everywhere else. I think that the farmer displaces the Indian even because he redeems the meadow, and so makes himself stronger and, in some respects, more natural. I was surveying for a man the other day, a single straight line 142 rods long, through a swamp, at whose entrance might have been written the words which Dante read over the entrance to the infernal regions, Leave all hope ye that enter, that is, of never getting out again, where at one time I saw my employer actually up to his neck and swimming for his life and his property, though it was still winter. He had another similar swamp which I could not survey at all because it was completely underwater and nevertheless with regard to a third swamp, which I did survey from a distance, he remarked to me, true to his instincts, that he would not part with it for any consideration on account of the mud which it contained. And that man intends to put a girdling ditch around the hole in the course of forty months and so redeem it by the magic of his spade. I referred to him only as the type of a class. The weapons with which we have gained our most important victories, which should be handed down as heirlooms from father to son, are not the sword and the lance, but the bushwhack, the turf cutter, the spade and the bog hoe, rusted with the blood of many a meadow and begrimed with the dust of many a hard-fought field. The very winds blew the Indian's cornfield into the meadow and pointed out the way which he had not the skill to follow. He had no better implement with which to entrench himself in the land than a clamshell, but the farmer is armed with plow and spade. In literature, it is only the wild that attacks. Dullness is but another name for tense. It is the uncivilized free and wild thinking in Hamlet and the Iliad and all the scriptures and mythologies, not learned in the schools, that delights us. As the wild duck is more swift and beautiful than the tame, so is the wild, the mallard, thought which mid-falling dews wings its way above the fens. A truly good book is something as natural and as unexpectedly and unaccountably fair and perfect as a wild flower discovered on the prairies of the west or in the jungles of the east. Genius is a light which makes the darkness visible, like the lightning's flash, which perchance shatters the temple of knowledge itself and not a taper lighted at the hearthstone of the race, which pales before the light of common. English literature from the days of the minstrels to the leg poets, Chaucer and Spencer and Milton, and even Shakespeare included, breeds no quite fresh and in this sense wild strain. It is essentially tame and civilized literature, reflecting Greece and Rome, or wilderness as a green wood, her wild man, a Robin Hood. There is plenty of genial love of nature, but not so much of nature herself. Her chronicles inform us when her wild animals, but not when the wild men in her, became extinct. We'll continue this story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we are always on the lookout for great stories to read. You can email me, bigvoicej at gmail.com. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>